0: this podcast is about you not us and so to that end we're interested in what you think your ideas your thoughts and so please share them and send them to info at com.
1: on this episode of I'm There For You Baby <phone rings> Barbara? Hey Neil does this resonate?
0: <laughs> oh wait 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 I, I know helicopter what, what's snowplow?
1: Greg Witz is the president and CEO of Witz Education.
2: You know, we cannot operate with these grand swoops, right?
0: Understanding yourself is really the the essence of leadership. Welcome, Peter.
2: They should come to
3: the understanding that there will be a time that they're no longer going to be walking on this earth. Wait, Wait Pe- Peter, there's, there's a baseline here. Yeah,
1: do you ever encounter that?
3: <laughs> We're doing like 20 million dollars worth of profit a year is the spouse gets involved
1: so you've built your business now what (laughs) i could get
3: a light i could get (laughs) a
1: light
3: i'm there for you baby is produced in san diego california america's
1: finest city presented by hyvian
0: welcome listeners to another edition of i'm there for you baby the entrepreneur's guide to the galaxy Normally at this time I get to tell you what's on my mind, but it appears that I have what is known as a tabula rasa. There is nothing on my mind. So today I'm gonna to turn you over to my wife, co-host partner, Barbara Bree, who seems to have something she wants to say about what's on her mind. BB, what do you got?
1: Uh, thank you, Neil. Yes, uh, yesterday was a very special day and this morning was also very special. I'll start with uh, what happened this morning that's so special. And that's our daughter, Rachel. Neil and I each brought a Rachel to the marriage. And uh, my biological daughter, Rachel, and her husband, Daniel, had identical twin boys who were born very early this morning. Uh, Everybody's doing well, and I'm looking forward to meeting them on uh, FaceTime uh, later today. So that's very special for our family. And yesterday, what happened was in the afternoon, I got my second dose of the Moderna vaccine And in the morning, I listened to a discussion of a Harvard Business School case about the remarkable development of the vaccine. And the CEO of Moderna, Stéphane Bensel, he's French, uh, was sitting in and commenting. So for me, Neil, it was like being back in business school, except there were 2,000 of us on Zoom and 30 HBS alums actively participating in the discussion not knowing when and if they would be called on by the professor. As a student, I remember being terrified that I would be called on and say something stupid. So Moderna is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they use an innovative platform called messenger RNA to develop drugs. So what is mRNA? It's a single strand molecule that carries genetic code from the DNA in our cell's nucleus to what's called the ribosomes, and they make the proteins that allow our bodies to function. This approach to vaccine development is fundamentally different than what has been done historically. But listen to this timeline. On January 11th, the gene sequence of coronavirus is posted online. Two days later, only two days later, the Moderna team finalized the design of a vaccine. And just two months later in March, they injected the first dose into a human volunteer in Seattle. In contrast, historically, the fastest this had been done was 20 months. So how did a 10 year old company accomplish this so quickly and what are the lessons for other entrepreneurs? As Stefan Benzel, the CEO says, we're a technology company that happens to do biology. And the company made the strategic decision early on to digitize everything from drug development to manufacturing. And we always say that having the right people on the team is key. Moderna was staffed with industry veterans, industry veterans though, who wanted to do drug development in a new way. They built a culture of innovation and cooperation, scientists and others didn't operate in silos as often happens in large companies. They were more entrepreneurial than big pharma, and they invested $125 million in a digital manufacturing facility even before they knew what they would make there. This was done a few years ago, long before we even knew about COVID. And and another important thing, they developed good relationships before they needed them. Good relationships with key government officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci, they call him Tony, who had visited this manufacturing plant in November 2019, again before COVID. And this was important because the federal government gave them almost $1 billion for the development of the vaccine and the ability to scale up the manufacturing and at the close of the case study discussion, uh, Mr. Bansell shared some of his thoughts. First, he said he does no social media because it's a distraction. Uh, he said that capitalism in the 21st century needs to be about more than shareholder value. And this is one reason why Moderna encourages and allows employees to volunteer in the community. Next up for the company is to develop a combination flu COVID vaccine. So we'll only have to get one vaccination next flu season. You know, Bancel is a truly inspirational CEO and what Moderna has accomplished is breathtaking and will save tens of millions of lives.
0: It's fantastic. I mean, it is is staggering to see what uh, the science community can do when, uh, called uh, to the highest level of effort. Uh, I'm, I'm in awe and um, you were lucky you weren't called on because you didn't really have the answer, did you, Barbara? <laughs> well, anyway, that was fantastic. What you're on your mind is on everyone's mind. There are millions of people waiting for Moderna and Pfizer and now J&J, and there will be more. It is a, a, a true effort, sort of like going to the moon and you're gonna see the number of people and companies involved are going to uh, replicate and increase, but not in a viral, an antiviral way. BB, what do you got?
1: Well, as you know, Neil, our show is about entrepreneurship and we celebrate it in all forms, whether it's in your own business, a large organization or a nonprofit. And if you're a business owner, you know, you spend years building your business. And then what? Uh, listeners, if you'd like to get hold of us, please email info at you com.
3: You're listening to I'm There For You Baby by IBN.
0: Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For over 10 years, IVC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques all to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications projects in any language or location. Visit us today at ivc.media.
1: Welcome back to I'm There For You, Baby, The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm Barbara Bree, and I'm here with my co-host and life partner and husband, Neil Centuria. You know, Neil, in your weekly column for the San Diego Union-Tribune, you write a lot about the search to become a better CEO, a better leader, a better entrepreneur. And I love that you're always looking to improve your decision-making and leadership skills. Our next guest, Greg Witz, is the President and CEO of Witz Education, which is committed to the ongoing development and training of today's leaders. He is the author of Lead, Follow, or Get Out of the Way, The Ultimate Guide to Leadership in the New World of Business. Welcome, Greg.
2: Thanks, Barbara and Neil. It's amazing to be here.
1: Great. So I know you're up in Canada, but you're inside and you're warm. Um, Tell us how you came to become involved in this work.
2: Yeah, so um, it's a a funny story. I fell backwards into this. This was never my intention. It was never something I sort of studied for. Uh, In fact, early days, it was my father's business. uh, That was called Personal Development Institute. And I started taking on a summer job there. And one thing led to the next and I started to build and I started to get more involved into things like, you know, professional development, adult education, corporate development as the industry started to grow. So did my interest in things like leadership and uh, coaching. So, I mean, it's been a long journey over the last 25 years, but uh, yeah, I was, I was introduced to this by accident
1: by accident. And sometimes, you know, that, you know, people say, well, did you have a grand plan to be an entrepreneur? I say, no, I kind of fell into it when economic necessity hit after I I got divorced in 1993. And then I met Neil. And then the last is (laughs) a wonderful history. So um, in your book, you talk about different personality types and each personality type has different implications for leadership. So I'll just re I'm interested you know the types you mentioned are critical parent nurturing parent spontaneous child withdrawn child angry child and adult leadership. So could we take them one at a time in terms of what each type is and what it means it uh, for leadership. So critical parent
2: All right, so let's back up. So this model is actually a model to help us understand what our personality is. And it's developed by a psychotherapist, psychologist actually, named Eric Burns in 1953. And what Burns did was he mapped the personality. So the personality is made up of three main areas, parental, adult, and child, like what is called ego states. And these names, parents, adults, and child are descriptors. They're not to describe age or status, they're to describe behavior. Now, if we have these different aspects of our personality, Right, and we've all grown to them, we all tend to lean towards one versus the other, and that's how it shows up in our leadership. So the thing you're talking about in your critical parent leadership, this is the dominant side to our personality. So that side, and if we're more of that dominant type of personality, if we're stronger in the critical parent, call it ego or trait within our personality, my leadership style is gonna take a natural approach of call it dominance, directness, authoritative, command and control. And why is it important to understand these different sides of our personality is we simply are not consciously using the right ones. We're unconsciously reverting back into what we're comfortable doing and what we've always done. So the understanding of these different ego states, critical parent leadership, nurturing parent leadership, adult leadership mm-hmm. is for us to give us an indication of what side of our personality is driving the leadership behavior.
0: So okay. wait, so I, hold on. I understand the concept of parental Mm-hmm. I, I challenge you a little with the word patriarchal, which suggests not necessarily direct, but more taking care of, mm-hmm. but help describe for us the, the middle one, adult mm-hmm. uh, leadership versus parental.
2: Cool. So let's look at the role of the parental state in our personality, the function, the responsibility of the side of our personalities to guide. We guide through two types of behavior directness, and what you said, encouragement, love, nurturance, compassion. So if we think about leadership, critical parent would be more firm, direct, right? Nurturing parent would be maybe more supportive, counseling, encouraging. Great. The adult. The adult side of our personality by definition is the side of intelligence, the side of thought. The responsibility for the adult side of our personality is to think. Now, when we start to operate with adult leadership, where we're operating with conscious thought, we're observing, we're self-aware, we're thinking about the personality that sits in front of us, we're planning, right? We're, we're, we're seeking information. We in turn actually become far more effective as leaders. I mean, I, I think you would agree that when it comes down to a lot of communication and specifically leadership interactions, the failure is in the delivery. The failure is in the, the telling. In a lot of cases, it's about the, 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 the seeking to understand that starts to create solutions.
1: So Greg, I understand why it's important to sort of figure out what your natural leadership style is. Can you change your leadership style? And should you, I mean, is there like an ideal leadership style?
2: Yeah, so I mean, great. So this is what I love about this model of our personality and how, why I loop it into leadership, which is we have six sides to our personality, right? That's the parent, the adult and child, which we could break down a little further in a sec. But your question is, can I change? Well, in the world of neuroplasticity and neuroscience, absolutely we can. We can absolutely learn new behaviors. We can develop new skills. We can, we can start to learn how to feel differently, right? Now, if I can do that, then I should be able to adjust my leadership style. And the true definition of leadership is to serve. The true definition of leadership is to coach and to give and to help people grow. What I now need to start to do as a leader is stop operating and call it my self-interest or my self-ideal, which is, this is the way I am, right? I have to say, what does this person need? What do they need from me? What's going to allow me to behave, to operate, to communicate, to lead, to to function in a way that helps this person show up in their best self, which by definition is the adult.
1: So, So if I'm the leader of an organization, I probably have to have an overreaching style, but I need to deal with sort of my senior, my team as individuals. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, we cannot operate with these grand swoops, right? So for example, you see this happening in a lot of the executive levels where you see a certain style of leader, you see a certain style of CEO, you see a certain style of entrepreneur. In fact, it's an interesting po- uh, profile for entrepreneurs because we're highly critical parent Right. We're high on angry child, right? We're usually high on spontaneous child, right? We're quite excessive as person- Hey Hey
1: Neil, does this resonate?
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, I I love I love Wits. He kind of gave me my first introduction to podcasting. The key it seems to me, because this this your your discussion of this is it resonates and it's accurate and it The trick is, I love the part that says, what does the other person need? Mm -hmm. So it's not just your style, but the other person may desire a more dictatorial turn left at the corner. Right. And the style may be, well, look, we're looking for pizza. Should we turn left or right? What do you think and how how you do it? I I had my own little training. I do coaching Mm -hmm. and I have a client and the client is looking to hire somebody, a high level executive. And he's gonna poach this person from some some other companies in Los Angeles. And he tells me what he wants. And I gave him the one simple puzzle. I said, why not when you're looking for these, why don't you ask the potential applicant, the potential, what do you want?
1: So, you know, Greg, we're living in very tumultuous times because of the COVID pandemic. How has this impacted your thoughts about effective leadership and what leaders should be doing today?
2: I love this question. So uh, I've been saying for the last year, everyone that's read a leadership book, everyone that's done a leadership course, everyone that's worked with a coach, now it's game time. No more learning, no no more practicing, now it's game time. What has the pandemic done? The pandemic has forced us into the true definition of leadership right? What people needed the most right now, from a primitive standpoint, all the way up to sort of, you know, a higher thought is they needed security. They needed guidance. They needed certainty. They needed, they needed direction. They needed to know that, 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 that there was a plan. There's the adults. They needed to be able to process information. They need to be able to make decisions. They needed to be able to do these things. And it was the leadership that sat in front of people that allowed them to do so. In other words, you know, look, my brand is all about making humans better humans. And what does this really mean? You gotta lead the human first before the task. And I think what the pandemic did to maybe answer this a little more directly, is it showed the importance of having to lead the human being before the function, before the role, before the task, before the project. Because if we cannot move the human being, if we cannot drive that, and you know this, you've heard the saying for for a long time, uh, people don't leave companies, they leave, managers right that's an oldie oldie but a goodie but again you know back to I think what has the pandemic done is it's forced people to actually practice and apply all the things that they've been learning in their corporate career
1: so do you is there anyone out there you could point to and if if you don't feel comfortable you don't have to use a real name of who's doing this well and how it manifests itself
2: yeah um yeah Okay, so I have a few clients, corporate clients that are in experiential marketing. They've done an incredible job, obviously, because a lot of their businesses were based on events. And what they needed to do was really sort of lead the transition of their own business. So I don't want to, I'll leave them nameless, but I, but I definitely think that someone doing well. I personally think we at WITS have done it extremely well, not just myself as the call it the leader, but the, the individual team members that have shown up as leaders. Um, I think to all the, 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 the hair salons, and the frontline businesses that have been locked down, that have been able to, you know, keep people motivated and coming back, and to keep staff sort of, you know, emotionally uh, looked after, have done it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the list could go on and on and on.
1: Yeah, actually, as Neil and I have been talking with us, leaders of both businesses and nonprofits, we've been impressed with the resiliency that we've seen um, and the innovation uh, to adapt to what's a terrible situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a new buzz term out there called servant leadership. What does that mean?
2: Yeah. Servant leadership is, is, it's, it's a new trending buzz term, but it's one of the oldest concepts. In fact, I recently did a podcast with, uh, and I'll show his name. His name is Howard Bahar. He's the ex uh, president of Starbucks, and he practiced a lot around servant leadership and servant leadership. Um, I'm pretty sure about, I'll correct myself, comes from Robert K. Greenleaf. And he developed a concept that said servant leadership has 11 core pillars in it. We won't go through all 11, but what it basically means is your role as a leader is here to serve. And you serve through community, you serve, you serve through empathy, you serve through connection, you serve through vulnerability, you, learn, you, you serve through stewardship, right? Uh, and in fact, we should put it in some of the footnotes of your show. The, the, the core aspects of servant leadership. But to me, very basically what it means is exactly what it sounds like. We're here to lift and serve. You're here to, to, to all those old little cartoons that you saw of the leader standing you know, uh, in front of the team, instead sort of behind the team, or well, maybe it was the opposite. Behind versus front, right? <laughs> That's what it means to me. It means that my job is to get up every day and make sure that I have done something to help someone move forward, either professionally or personally
1: know, something else that complicates the workplace is, you know, we have, you know, we have four different generations. We have baby boomers. We have Gen X, uh, which apparently doesn't like top-down uh, management. We have Gen Y. We have Gen Z, which, and some people say Gen Z uh, felt, feels entitled. So, how, how do you, as a leader, resolve, yeah. you know, conflicts that are, that are that emerge because of having four different generations in the workplace?
2: Uh, you know, I think as people, we always love these, these, these types of terms. And I know my book back in the day spoke a lot about the, the difference in generations, but isn't it funny how we need to, to have these things to define ourselves against others, right? So how do we, how do we deal with the different generations? I think is the question, right? I think it comes down to individual communication. Let me remove the position of here's a generation. Here's a millennial. Here's a Z. Here's an X. Here's a Y. Here's a this. And by the way, there is a lot of truth to the difference in generations, but not because of the, the year they were born, because of how they were parented, the environment they grew up in. So if you grew up in more of a traditional home, like, you know, you, you, you grew up with things like rules and stuff. Well, we started to notice with the younger generations as we tried to become more loose and supportive and, you know, uh, uh, encouraging as parents we kind of swung the pendulum a little too far. That's where helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting kicked in. And mm-hmm. this is why we see such an issue with resilience today. Whoa, but whoa, I, wait, wait, wait,
0: wait. I, I know helicopter. What, what's snowplow? Snow,
2: what? Snowplow parenting is when we move obstacles and resistance out of the quotation child's way. So oh, we make child, it easy. We make it easy. So, so, so
0: what we do is we make a $500,000 contribution to the sailing team at USC, for somebody to get into school when in fact they wouldn't know a tiller from a carburetor.
2: That is, I was about to say, there was something that happened out, in, uh, out West, right? that, uh, at one of the schools. That's exactly it. So instead of one sort of having to grind and work hard through merit, right? Which by definition, what builds resilience, you brought up resilience earlier, mm-hmm. is exposure. Right. Is having to go through the stress. But let me just answer the question because I, I, yeah. I wanna close that out. It is really important that we communicate independently, uh, individually, regardless of the generation. And it is through me seeking information in the beginning of that interaction that I'm able to communicate to any generation effectively.
1: Great. Is there any last thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
2: Uh, yes, I will repeat what I said earlier. <clears throat> we as individuals love to learn. And sometimes that becomes the problem in all of this, listening to the podcast, reading the book, you know, doing the course, the true success in leadership is the action afterwards. So if we are going to learn, if we are going to listen to podcasts, if we are going to read these books, we have more of a responsibility to apply the skills and practice. And that's sort of the second piece that I'll leave the audience with, which is like anything that we do very well, it's because we practice. Yoga is a practice, breathing is a practice, meditation is a practice, and guess what, leadership is a practice as well.
0: That's, That's the famous 10,000 hours. Yes. Okay. Very well done. Very well. Uh, Wits, this is uh, terrific. Uh, you, you're, you're a magician. So um, uh, I like Wits education and I like the way you ended with uh, readings nice, but implementation is the ticket.
1: Uh, Greg, how can our listeners reach you?
2: Um, anywhere. Witz, G R E G W I T Z. You'll see me pop up on all the platforms. Uh, some of them, I think uh, one of them is GM Witz. Uh, that might be uh, actually Instagram, but Instagram and uh, LinkedIn uh, are some of the main platforms that we produce. Uh, I host a podcast. It's called The Better Human Podcast. Go check that out on all the major players. And of course, you could always come and check out Wits Learning, Witz Learning, W I T Z Learning.com. And uh, it's got more information about that.
1: Well, uh, thank you for joining us today, Greg. Uh, The advice you've given is relevant to anyone in any type of organization. Coming up, we'll talk with Peter Merrick, an expert in helping business owners prepare for succession.
2: Hey, I am Greg Witz. I am the president and CEO of Witz Education and the host of the Better Human podcast. And you are listening to I Am There For You Baby, The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Hey, if you're listening to this, you're a content consumer. Ever heard of You Are What You Eat? I'm Jeff Marston, host of The Extra Point on IVN. When you finish listening to this stimulating episode, get an extra serving of enlightenment with a side of intrigue. Join us on The Extra Point, where we're cooking up multiple points of view and mixing it up with various topics. Let's have a healthy discussion in good taste. And don't forget your etiquette. It's The Extra Point with Jeff Marston on IVN.org. Serving it up for you. Hey, what the hell are we, a podcast or a burger joint? Who writes this stuff?
1: Welcome back to I'm There For You Baby, The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm here with my co host and husband, Neil Centuria. Our next guest is Peter Merrick, an expert in helping business owners prepare for succession. Welcome, Peter.
3: Thank you so much, Barbara, and thank you, Neil.
1: So Peter, tell us, what is business succession planning?
3: Well, it's for many people, it's many different things. However, it's getting out of your business and getting as much out of your business as possible. And what I mean by that is you're transitioning out, whether you're leaving it into hands of family or key employees and they're happy and they're going to grow your legacy, or you're going to sell it to a third party who's going to take over the business and run it. And you'll be able to have as much resources for the rest of your journey, which is your last third, which for many people, I believe it's their best third. So wait, I, I have a direct question,
0: which is Go how do it. you convince Harry and Betty to sell their business? Well, they spent 25 years building it <laughs> and, and they don't just wake up one day rationally and say, you know, honey, we should sell our business. How do you deal with the, that moment?
3: Well, Neil, that's a really good question. And I, real, I, I do not convince anybody to do anything. I find people who usually fit in five categories. One, they are, they've been in the business for 20 years or longer, and they're just tired. Number two, they have enough money in the company that they want to have access to and they want to do something completely different. They're tired of partners. They've been partners with people for a number of years. There's changes happening in the industry and they just don't want to do it anymore. And COVID's a really good example where people have built great businesses, they've survived and they've actually done well. And now they're saying, well, how do I, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted and I'm well-spent.
0: Yeah. Wait, wait. This is important. If, if I want to sell my business, don't I, don't I normally go to an investment banker? Are you an IB? Well, or how, how, do they, how do they use your services?
3: Well, it really depends who their trusted advisor is. Many times when someone's getting uh, ready to sell or thinking to sell, they go to their accountants because okay? those are the individuals that they have a continuous relationship with. And not everybody is uh, suited to help in that next transition. So many people will ask their colleagues, their friends, their accountants, do you know somebody that I can speak to? Because I'd like to get my business ready to sell. And there's several ways that it can go about. Some some people are preparing their company to sell to a third party Other people, their businesses are more specialized and they have to groom people within their corporation or their business to take over, such as in accounting firms or franchises or different things of that nature, or their family members. So it really depends on the person realizes that there's going to be a moment in their life that the business isn't going to be their life. And usually what happens, Neil, is there's an event in someone's life. And as we get older, we start thinking we want different things. And we start thinking beyond what we're currently doing. And that usually happens. And I find around 50 to 70 years old, those are the, that's the period that someone is really open to making that transition.
1: So I'm thinking, hey, I want to sell my business. What's the first thing I should do? And what's the worst thing I could do?
3: The, The first thing that someone should do is they should come to the understanding that there will be a time that they're no longer going to be walking on this earth. And why I say that Barbara is because you want to make choices while you can. The worst thing that ever happens, and it's not so much with the business owner, it's I'd say I have a great business and I have a heart attack and I've got no planning. And therefore the business could blow up at that point because I am business so it's preparation so once someone has made that determination i believe the best thing for them to do is get an evaluation for the business and create what i would call an offering memorandum or a prospectus and what and why you would do that is you would go and look at all facets of the business you would actually have term sheets and everything prepared for yourself so when the opportunity arises when you do decide that you want to go to market or sell the business you have real you have realistic expectations and what i mean by wait wait wait
0: wait, peter there's a baseline here which is the old man comes in says to his kids i want to sell the business and they say no no we are capable of running it we'd like to keep the business we'll buy it from you and he says no you're incompetent i never should have had you as children anyway and i'm gonna
1: sell
3: it to someone else
1: do you ever yeah do you ever encounter that
3: I have have encountered that, and one of the issues that I find in family-run businesses, and some of these are doing like $20 million worth of profit a year, is the spouse gets involved. And it becomes a bit of a problem because uh, Junior talks to the, the other parent and there's this tension happening i'll give you a perfect example Uh, i was dealing in selling a business and we were prepping everything together and the reason why the founder decided to sell is the children got involved in the business and um his his spouse uh, he was complaining to the spouse the fact that he had to manage all this info fighting amongst the kids. And she said, well, you deserve this because you weren't here for the first 30 years while I was raising the kids. Now you have to care with <laughs> them. Uh, a really good friend of mine has come up with a really great solution. And what it is, is you want to see if the children are really going to invest in the business and grow the business and not just, the, you know, not change it or manage it or not like, you know, just be entitled is go to those children Give them a gift and also at the same time you give them financial gifts let them know that they can take that money and buy shares into the company and it's very simple if they decide to take that money and buy like a harley davidson or like a tesla or a car or go traveling to europe you know they're not serious about the business and that's right. an indication of selling it but if they do take that money and they invest it back in the business you know that they got, they got skin in the game and they also have shown that they are willing to you know invest in the business as an owner and that's the simplest way to find out whether or not your child is feeling entitled yeah. or whether they want to take the business and do something with it. Barbara, do we have any businesses we could sell?
1: <laughs> not right now, Neil. <laughs> well,
3: I think the
0: problem is been... any business that I'm involved in, no one would want to buy. Right, right. <laughs> so... But,
1: but, so what happens if you want to sell your business and you need to sell your business and no one wants to buy it? What and do you, you do can't... then?
3: Because then you've been too late. So let me share with you the ultimate way. The best buyer would be a third-party buyer. I decide that I want to sell my business. We prepare everything. We go to market. We have several interested parties, and they come and they decide they want to buy my business. I sell my business. I get a yeah, fair
0: but, but price. Wait, wait, Pete, I, Peter, Peter. Yes. I, I've done this. So you prepare all that. You get three offers. First offer is a dollar. Second offer is eighty cents. Third offer is 74 cents and the owner of the business, I was planning on getting $4. Mm -hmm. So he has to come to you and say, Merrick, uh, the business I wanna sell is $4 business and nobody will give me more than a dollar.
3: Then what does he do? Well, there's going back to what I was sharing is that's the ultimate selling the business to a third party. Then you all, if you're not able to sell it to a third party then, and you're not getting offered the money that you you believe your business is worth, you have to actually invest in your business to make business more sellable. No, no, I
0: don't want to do that. What I want to do then is say, you know, I've had it, close up the business, (laughs) take my money and run. I actually do not think, I mean, I I have experiences where people say, I want to sell it, and I I know it's worth $4, nobody's going to give me more than a dollar and a quarter, and I don't care about the dollar and a quarter.
1: I'm done. Yeah. No, so I there see- are people who said they've had enough. Yeah, and Neil, I've seen problems. that with I've seen that with restaurants. So um, people just can close I can off, I can know, share
3: can I share uh, my answer with that? Mm-hmm. They're generating really great revenue, but because the way that their company is set up they're not able to sell the business because it's not provable and someone doesn't want to buy something because it's just that person running the business. Right. So many of those people at that point, let's say I, and I've had this situation happen all the time where someone's offered $10 million and they say, you know, if I work for another three years, I'm going to have that $10 million myself. So why would I work for someone else or sell my business? So at that point it says, okay, I can't sell my business. How do I take as much money out of the business as possible. So I have the resources to live the life I want later on. And that's something that I really love doing because I love tax.
1: Yeah. So So many
3: people... Yeah,
1: Yeah. Peter, very challenging to deal with all the different personalities of all these business owners with children, other relatives. What last piece of advice would you like to give our listeners?
3: The piece of advice I would say is if you have a business, The most important thing to ask yourself is why did you get into the business and it's usually not to create a legacy it's to create the lifestyle that you want and at that point ask yourself what do you want to do during your last days and are you able to do it and what i mean by that is once you come to terms that you want to do something else let's say charity philanthropy or something like that then have to look at how do i transition to it in many cases that's getting out of the business and whether you choose to consciously sell your business get out of your business or life itself will make that choice for you so you have so it doesn't matter who we are barbara neil Uh life is going to get us out of our business i don't know anybody who's lived 120. wait wait wait
0: Whoa! wait are you telling me that i uh, i don't get to stay here forever All right. Listen, Peter, you've been fantastic. One of the things that Peter does is he's very good at tax uh, maneuvering or using the the system to the benefit of the seller. And I understand his point about lifestyle and, and on the books versus actual profit. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of emotion to selling and it is a complex you're more of a psychologist than a business consultant so we're grateful to have peter and uh, and thank you for your time and expertise
3: i'm peter Merrick. i'm an income and capital enhancement specialist you've been listening to i'm there for you baby the entrepreneur's guide to the galaxy
0: So Barbara, Peter Merrick talks about succession planning. And and the assumption in there, of course, is that a rational business owner comes and says, I'd like to sell my business. The truth is that coming to to the, the realization that I'm going to sell my business is I think more psychological than economic. And that even though he talks about an offering memorandum, and I know that that is needed, what I've seen and what you've seen is that they... Either the decision is made for you, your wife dies, your children, whatever, you had it, so you're then obligated, or you are dragged kicking and screaming by other people to sell your business. And I will tell you that, because we've been doing this for 30 years, everybody thinks their business is worth more than they get for it. And then the last piece of his puzzle is convincing the guy who got offered the buck and a quarter that actually that is the right price and that the $4 was a fantasy and you will never get it. That is hard work, I hope he can work on that. I think that's gotta be one of the skills you need if you're gonna plan
1: that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Neil. And I think we said it during the interview, he's as much a psychologist as sort of a technical consultant on, you know, how you structure this and that and how you do uh, the offering memorandum. Uh, Listeners, that's it for this edition of I'm There For You Baby, The Entrepreneur's Guide to the Galaxy. If you have a suggestion for us, please email us at info at com. Thank you for listening to I'm There For You Baby, presented by IVN. I'm There For You Baby is produced in San Diego, California, America's finest city. Presented by IVN. The COVID pandemic has hit America hard. Nationwide, black individuals have seen 2.6 times greater infection rate than their white counterparts. The news is especially frightening for African-Americans who are at a greater risk of severe complications from COVID-19 due to underlying conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. I'm Dr. Shirley Weber, the Assemblywoman from the 79th, and I'm encouraging everyone in our communities to do their part. Get tested, mask up, and avoid gatherings. Visit blackcovetfactssd.org.